Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, we're talking about President Biden's inconsistent actions on climate. On the one hand, he's pushing a major transformation in the way America generates power and pledging to drastically cut carbon emissions. On the other hand, he is about to lease off 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico to oil and gas companies and 700,000 acres of public land across the West. So is there any way to make sense of that? We're going to talk to Drew Caputo from Earth Justice about the work he is doing to hold the Biden administration accountable. And because we know that things can look more than a little bleak these days, we're going to start wrapping things up with some good news in every episode. So please hang on for that. But first, here's some other news. Lawmakers have added important measures to fix drilling on public lands to the big budget bill currently making its way through Congress. The House Natural Resources Committee passed its portion of the bill last week. They increased royalty rates for oil and gas drilling, updating numbers that have been in place for over 100 years. That bill also dramatically strengthens the bonds that oil and gas companies have to post when they drill on public lands, which will hopefully make sure drillers clean up after their messes. And it includes billions of dollars to help clean up wells that have already been abandoned and are leaking or are still open. It would also create a royalty on hard rock mining, which, believe it or not, America has never had. Thanks to the mining law of 1872, companies can currently mine minerals like copper and silver from public land without paying taxpayers at all. The bill also includes a civilian climate core, which would improve our public lands and help America prepare for more fires and flooding. So the question now becomes, what? What happens next? It looks like all of these provisions will pass out of the House, but the Senate is another matter. Colorado Senators John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett are both champions of those bonding reforms, so they could be key to making sure that they stay in. Joe Manchin, the chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, of course, doesn't like the overall price tag of the infrastructure bill, but he hasn't said anything about the climate core specifically, as far as I can tell. We'll keep an eye on that as the bill moves through the House and the Senate. In the meantime, let's talk about how the White House is undercutting its own climate goals. Our guest this week is the vice president of litigation for lands, wildlife and oceans at Earth Justice, which literally makes him the lawyer for planet Earth. Drew Caputo, welcome to the landscape. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. And let's bring in our policy director here at the Center for Western Priorities, Jesse Prentice Dunn. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be here as well. So, Drew, President Biden made a trip out west this week talking about wildfires and climate change and renewable energy in Idaho, California, and Colorado. But at the same time, his administration is getting ready to auction off drilling rights to more than 700,000 acres of public lands in Wyoming and Colorado, and they are outright rushing to offer up some 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. Is there any way you can square that circle? Is a sale of that size compatible with the president's climate goals? Well, it's a it's a real problem between the Biden administration's climate aspirations and their climate action. Production of oil, gas, and coal on federal lands is a huge climate issue. 25% of the carbon dioxide emissions in the United States, a full one quarter of the U.S. carbon footprint, comes from oil, gas, and coal extracted from federal lands and federal waters. Those are lands and waters that belong to all Americans. 
and they're being used to make climate change worse. It's also the piece of the U.S. carbon footprint that the president and his, his administration have the most responsibility and control over. And the reality is we cannot meet U.S. climate goals and obligations if we continue with business as usual in the federal fossil fuel program. And we are now coming up on nine months into the Biden administration. Have they taken any significant steps to reduce that 25 percent number from public lands? Well, they took a huge step out of the box, which was a week into the administration. They imposed a moratorium on new oil and gas leasing which was a tremendous step, never been, never happened before. It seemed to signal uh, a new phase for the federal fossil fuel program, but they're now veering in the opposite direction. And the gigantic step that they are poised to take, as you mentioned, Aaron, is to auction off essentially all remaining unleased waters in the Western and Central Gulf of Mexico. As you said, 80 million acres, and their own estimate is that if they lease those over a multi-decade period, uh, more than a billion barrels of oil could be produced from that, from that lease sale. There is no way the United States can successfully fight climate change by doing it. And I assume the – have you calculated the carbon footprint from, uh, from a billion barrels of oil? It's got to be massive. I mean, it's, it, that's a lot of oil. And we just we just got a report out of uh, from the United Nations group of uh, climate scientists, the IPCC, who said that if we want to keep climate change temperature rise uh, within manageable bounds, difficult, but still manageable grounds, bounds, we need to change what we're doing now. There simply isn't room. We're out of time for this kind of oil and gas production. And it's discouraging to see a climate president pushing in that direction. Now, what about the legal argument here? Uh, th there was a case in Louisiana where the oil industry and the, and the state sued to, to try to overturn this, uh, the, the pause that President Biden put in place on, on day one. What did the judge order and did it require Interior to move this fast to lease this many acres? The judge's order is, um, let's say, wide ranging. <laughs> and uh, a little difficult to understand fully. But it can be read to tell the Biden administration that they need to go ahead with that Gulf of Mexico oil set. That is legally wrong. The judge's view appears to be that once the federal government writes a plan to do a, a, an oil and gas lease sale offshore, they have to proceed with it. And one way to see that that's completely wrong in addition to being contrary to other case law, is that last year, the Trump administration delayed an offshore oil, oil sale because of changes in the oil market caused by the COVID pandemic. No one was going to no buy. One, no one complained about it then. <laughs> no one said it was illegal yeah. because it's not. There are a bunch of things the Biden administration could do to deal with the situation despite that court order. They simply have chosen not to do them. Jesse? Well, Drew, you just touched on a lot of the offshore um, concerns here. It, it also seems to me, and I'm, I'm not an attorney, um, but that when it comes to onshore public lands in the West, that the Interior Department and the Secretary has wide latitude 
um, to dictate which, if any, public lands are put up for auction and what the terms are there to make sure we're protecting our communities, taxpayers, the climate, wildlife, you name it. So I, I'm curious your take on the onshore side of things. Uh, why is the administration moving forward with, with these broad lease sales? You are exactly right, Jesse, that the administration has a lot of discretion whether and when and where to offer parcels for sale. Um, I think they feel like they are required to proceed with at least some lease sales under the law. And I also think they are feeling political pressure to do so. And we can argue about whether they need to offer any lease sales onshore. We can argue with the industry, for example, about whether they need to um, offer any lease sales onshore. But they certainly don't need to proceed at the scale and in the locations that the previous administration especially has. So the test for them is going to be if they insist on offering new oil and gas lease sales onshore, which is bad policy, but if they choose to do that, they need to make sure that they're doing it at a small scale and in a targeted way so that they can deal with the damage from that program, not just to the climate, but to groundwater and to wildlife habitat and to air quality and all sorts of other things that matter tremendously for our public lands. I was going to say, I, I think that's exactly right. And what, what gets my goat here is that a lot of the the leases that are being put up for auction in the West were initially proposed by the Trump administration. They're essentially zombie leases that are coming back from the dead. Uh, and so it's, it's a little frustrating to see them have a, a new lease on life, so to speak. Totally true. And what are we looking at here, Jesse, in terms of the, this 700,000 acres in, in Colorado and Wyoming and, and a smattering of other states as well, but the bulk of what they're proposing right off the bat here is Wyoming and Colorado. What areas of, of the states are we looking at and, and what's at stake there in terms of sensitive lands? Sure. So Wyoming, you're seeing leases offered across the state at some 570,000 acres. I mean, put that in perspective, that's well north of two times the size of Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, in Colorado, you're seeing about 140 plus thousand acres put up for auction. Uh, all of this is impacting things like sensitive sage-grouse habitat, big game habitat, uh, lands with wilderness characteristics, areas of critical environmental concern. I mean, it, it really runs the gamut of conservation uh, concerns here. So it, I think you're saying this isn't some targeted lease sale. It's a broad swath of public lands in the West that are going to be put on the auction block. So, Drew, where is Earth Justice on both the offshore and onshore lease sales here? What is the, the legal outlook going forward here? Well, the offshore lease sale is the one that's moving the quickest. And um, they, they published a decision to proceed with the offshore lease sale on August 31st. And we sued them the same day. And we sued them because that lease sale is not just terrible policy, as we've been describing. It's illegal. And let me take 30 seconds to describe how, because it's really telling. They're relying on the same environmental compliance for that lease sale that was prepared um, by the Trump administration. And that environmental compliance claims that if you issue this lease sale and produce potentially more than a billion barrels of oil from this lease sale, you will not increase greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, the environmental compliance claims that you would have fewer greenhouse gas emissions if you sold the lease sale than if you didn't sell it because of some ridiculous 
assumptions and conclusions about that oil being supplied somewhere else in the world at a more damaging environmental cost. Now, that not only makes no sense <laughs> for reasons we can discuss and include the law of supply and demand, yeah. but that exact same analysis claiming that not producing the oil would produce more green greenhouse gas emissions, the federal government has relied on in two other circumstances. And since last year, we've won two lawsuits in which courts have rejected that loopy non-analysis as irrational and thrown out government actions based on that. So the sale is illegal because among other things, they haven't actually come to grips with the greenhouse gas emissions, which is the most significant thing about the sale. Onshore, um, it's unclear yet exactly where they're gonna proceed. And Earth Justice is gonna be watching them carefully and are gonna be prepared to go to court to block any onshore sales that are illegal. But that's in the, in the scoping phase right now, so there's nothing yet to go to court over? We don't have a decision yet, correct. Jesse or Drew, I, I wanna ask about drilling permits for a second, um, which is separate from uh, the, the lease sales here. Is the, the Biden administration moving ahead, giving oil and gas companies the green light to drill on leases that they already have? Uh, and how does that compare from what we can tell to what was happening under the Trump administration? Absolutely. I mean, under the Biden administration, since Inauguration Day, they've issued more than 2,700 drilling permits. If you break that down, uh, that's about 17 for every business day they're in office. Wow. Um so I, I think what you can tell here is that the pace may have slowed a little bit, but we're still talking business as usual here. And business as usual is a product of the broken system for our oil and gas, oil and gas on public lands. It's, it's essentially a rubber stamp system. So I, the point I, I would make here is we're, we're talking about lease sales, but from, from soup to nuts, every step of this process is broken and is in deep need of reform. I mean, it's it's based on a, a law from 1920. Uh, we're in 2021, so I, I think uh, what we are seeing now is is a need for Congress to act, the administration to be bold. We're dealing with, as President Biden yesterday said in Colorado, a climate that is blinking code red. So we don't have time to just rubber stamp drilling permits and issue new leases. We need bold reforms. Uh, that's just what I keep thinking. Kate, you were wondering about gas prices earlier today. Yeah, I was just curious if you have any insight. You know, all of us are trying to figure out why the Biden administration is so eager to lease. Um, and the big criticism that he's been getting from the right is that gas prices are going up and then he asked OPEC to increase drilling. Do you think that has anything to do with the speed at which Interior is moving this forward? Well, I think they're worried about getting hit politically. And I'm, I, look, I'm sympathetic about the political position that they're in. There are very thin margins in Washington, D.C. There is a huge multi-zillion dollar fossil fuel industry that's making money from this thing. And there is a very large political constituency centered in one party that serves the interests of that constituency. So I get, I get the political concern. The reality is it takes time once you issue an oil and gas lease to actually develop the lease and move it into production, which means the impact on today's oil and gas prices from anything about leasing right now is 
zero, absolute nil. So there's no factual basis for that. The other point is, look, I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to dismiss the fact that there are economic costs to transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy. There are also economic benefits. The, the jobs in the 21st century in the energy sector are not going to be in fossil fuel. They're going to be in other sources of energy. And the countries that lead on those new sources of energy are not just going to lead from an environmental perspective, they're going to lead from an economic perspective. And then the final point here, none of us wish it were true, but we're out of time for the climate. The climate crisis does not care about the political difficulties of dealing with climate change. The climate crisis doesn't really care about the economic impact. The, we're talking about politics, understandably, but what we're dealing with is an issue of atmospheric physics. And I hate to say it, but that's what we need to deal with. It, just to add on that, it, in the near term, what we're dealing with is not some perfect market where it's just absolute supply and demand meeting it. What we've been dealing with with rising gas prices is climate disasters. So Hurricane Ida knocking off a lot of our production and refining capacity, um, working with distribution networks here. So we're, we're dealing with a problem of logistics that is manageable over time, but being worsened by climate change. And the glide path that we're on is reduced demand. As cars get more efficient, uh, more electric vehicles come on the road, it, once you see that that path start to go, we're seeing declines of prices that, you know, it, it's kind of a terminal problem for the oil and gas industry. So, it, you know, to the extent that that we're dealing with economics here, it, it's not a perfect system. And so uh, the problem with gas prices is not that we aren't pumping enough on public lands, just, just to put it there. I want Drew's take on, on that. I mean, we, we know that the folks running the show are very smart. They're very passionate about doing the right thing. We've talked to a whole bunch of them on this podcast before, including Secretary Holland before she was Interior Secretary. So I mean, what is going on here? Is this just politics? Is this regulatory capture, as we, we hear about, of just industry effectively running agencies? And it's just too big a ship to steer that quickly. I mean, what's, how do you explain what's happening? Uh, with their words versus their actions? I think they're under intense political pressure from the industry and through the elected officials whom the industry supports to proceed with business as usual. And I, I don't for a moment think they want to do that. They're, they're smart people, as you say, Aaron, and they understand the climate crisis is real and immediate. But they're being cross-pressured. And again, my answer to that question is the climate crisis doesn't care about any of that. And the other reality is they ran on a platform of dealing with climate change. There is a, for sure, a political constituency out there that wants to continue with business as usual on fossil fuel. But there is a growing and younger and passionate political constituency out there that does not want to live in a world where terrible hurricanes and flooding and wildfires are not only a fact of life, but they're getting worse and worse. So there is an overwhelming policy case, but an even just, just a significant political case for action. So for those of us who are not lawyers, who can't directly take the oil industry or the, the administration to court, what is the most effective way to bring about that change? And I realize 
that's you know maybe a, a tricky question to pose to a lawyer. Uh, but what what works? And and, and it, does outside pressure work even when it comes to to court cases? I mean, courts don't exist in a vacuum. Judges, I presume, don't exist in a vacuum. What what moves the needle? Well, I think we're on a we're in an all 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 hands on deck, all tools in the toolbox moment. I, I think lawsuits are valuable. We stopped the Trump administration in court, for example, from expanding offshore oil drilling. That was because of a lawsuit that Earth Justice brought. Um, we welcome people's support in the work that we're doing because we think it's important. We, we have an imperfect democracy, but it's still a democracy. And people respond, elected officials respond when people become passionate and loud about issues. I don't think most people know that a quarter of the U.S. carbon footprint comes from oil, gas, and coal extracted from lands that we all own. Our lands are being used to make climate change worse. And the more people can talk about that and let elected officials know about that and let them know that they care about it, I think that's how we make change. Let me just add on real quick. We've talked a lot here about uh, action on the or inaction on the federal level. Um, but I think it's also important to note that states and communities around the West in particular have been taking action. I mean, Colorado is ahead of meeting its renewable energy targets. Nevada passed a landmark clean energy standard. New Mexico is doing incredible, incredible work to ramp down methane emissions, uh, on and on. And when it goes down to the city level, that's even more impressive. So I, I think sometimes it, it's a bit daunting when you're trying to steer the ship of federal policy. But uh, folks can get active in their local city councils, in their state governments, their state houses, and that has a real impact too. Because as we've seen at the federal level, when folks go backwards, drag their knuckles, uh, that's when people at the local and state levels have stepped up. And so I think, as Drew mentioned, this is all hands on deck, and it's going to require all levels of government moving forward as well. So I actually have a question related to something we were talking about earlier. Um, you were talking about how the the you sued the federal government over the climate impact statement for this upcoming lease sale. Could you talk about that and sort of what legal tools you you use to stop these lease sales or to um, stall them? And also whether this how the climate impact um, calculation works and whether that is becoming more relevant as our yeah, climate gets worse. That's a great question, Kate. So um there's a really important federal law called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. And it's the law that requires the federal government to prepare environmental impact statements when they might take an action that could have a significant environmental impact. The, the basic logic of the law is look before you leave. It, it doesn't have any, the law doesn't have any substantive requirements, but it requires the federal government to analyze and disclose the environmental impacts of an action before they take the action. The theory being that if they do that analysis, they'll have more and better information and make better decisions. And if they disclose that information, then the public can get involved and write their member of Congress or the Secretary of the Interior and say, hey, this is a bad idea to go forward with this lease sale. So as part of their NEPA compliance, they had to analyze the environmental impacts of the sale. One of the impacts of the sale is greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the federal government has never been very interested in analyzing the greenhouse gas emissions of their fossil fuel leasing program because it's an inconvenient truth, to quote Al Gore. So they did it here, but they did it in a truncated way. And they, they said, OK, well, if we don't produce this oil in the United States, we're just going to assume 
that there will be perfect cost-free substitution of that oil supply somewhere else in the world. And we don't know exactly where that will happen or how it will happen, but we can guarantee that it will be done with less care for the environment and therefore the greenhouse gas emissions will be worse. And they went, they took one step further and said, it's too complicated for us to figure all that stuff out. So we're not going to look into any of those issues. And instead, we're just going to assume that it's going to happen magically and it's going to be worse for the environment. And the two courts that have considered that analysis, that exact analysis, this year and last, have thrown it out because they said that's just completely unreasoned. And that even if you can't answer every single question, you can do a reasoned analysis that tells you whether it's true or not that not producing oil is better for climate change, which is a, which is ridiculous. So that's that's basically the issue. How concerned are you over the state of the judiciary writ large right now? Particularly, this this ruling on the offshore case came from a judge that President Trump nominated out of Louisiana. The Fifth Circuit there is probably arguably the the most conservative in the country. And now we have a Supreme Court uh, that seems to have a 6-3 conservative majority. Uh, is, is the deck stacked against you slash the planet in the courts right now? And, and are, you, are you worried about that going forward? Well, there's no question that the courts during the Trump administration not only became more conservative, but they became more politicized. And I, I think that's a really terrible thing. Um, having said that, uh, I think most judges take their job really seriously. And at Earth Justice, we have repeatedly won cases uh, in front of judges who were appointed by Republican presidents the same way we've won cases repeatedly before Democratic presidents. And so I am, um, I am optimistic that we can continue to make change through the courts but we need to pair that litigation advocacy with all sorts of other advocacy, communications advocacy, organizing, because again, we're, we're, we're out of time on this stuff from a climate perspective. Last question for you. Uh, how has Earth Justice's approach changed over the last nine months coming out of the Trump administration into the Biden administration? And now as we're staring down these lease sales, uh, has it changed uh, what you do, how you do it. Well, we are an equal opportunity enforcer of the law. We sued the Trump administration, I don't know, 200 times, I'd say, during the four years of their administration. But we sued the, the Obama administration during the eight years of their administration, probably you know, a couple hundred times too. So we are completely nonpartisan in our approach, which is if you're doing great things for the environment, we're going to go to court and support you. And if you're doing bad things for the environment, we're going to go to court and try and knock down what you're doing. And we did both. Um, we do both. Well, we didn't really do any support of the Trump administration because they didn't do anything good for the environment. But if you take the, the Obama administration, for example, we supported them when they did things well, and we took them to court when they didn't do things well. And that's exactly what we're doing with the Biden administration. Okay. Yeah. Um, on that note, what are you supporting so far with the Biden administration? Well, they've done... I want to be really clear. They've done some important things. Uh, for example, the, the out-of-the-box leasing pause was significant. And they canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. And they 
are suggesting that they have a reform agenda that they are going to put forward on federal oil and gas, for example. And I take them at their word on that because they're good people and, and um, they, take, they see the problems as, as, as much as we do. But the issue is the balance. The, well, the issue, the issue is, are they proceeding with the scale of reform that's necessary to meet the challenges facing the planet? And so far, I think they have a way, way to go. Well, we haven't even gotten into Alaska, and I suspect that's going to be a whole separate episode for us coming up because there are a whole lot of moving parts there from the National Petroleum Reserve to the Arctic Refuge uh, to mining issues and, and others. So uh, I suspect we will be talking again to, to you or someone else from Earth Justice uh, the next time we dive into Alaska issues. Uh, but Drew, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your perspective. And above all else, uh, thank you for all the amazing work you do. It's a pleasure to be here, Aaron. Thank you. We're going to start bringing you a dose of good news at the end of every episode of The Landscape, starting today. Colorado Congressman Joe Neguse has successfully included provisions to protect the Thompson Divide in the House Natural Resources Committee budget. The Thompson Divide is a 200,000-acre area southwest of Glenwood Springs. A huge number of local residents and community groups have been fighting to protect it for the past decade. Neguse included $500,000 in the budget to buy out oil and gas companies that own leases in the Thompson Divide. He also included a ban on future oil and gas leasing in the area. The bill also includes protections for the greater Chaco region in New Mexico, which is, of course, a major archaeological and spiritually important area, especially to indigenous groups, that is also at risk of drilling. So stay tuned, as they say, in hopes that these protections make it through both the House and the Senate. That's it for this episode of The Landscape. Thanks again to Drew Caputo from Earth Justice for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this episode. And we always love your feedback and your ideas for guests we should talk to. Please send that to podcast at westernpriorities.org. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. Thanks for listening. 